There are many, many people today who wrongly think that because their parents were Christians, that they're automatically Christians too. But this is not the case. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Katsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today we continue in a series called Perfect Power in Our Weakness in the book of 2 Corinthians, now in chapter 11. Today's message is called Boasting in Weakness, where Pastor Paul literally does spend time boasting about his weaknesses. So maybe you want to start off today just riffing a bit about your weaknesses. (laughs) Oh, he does. He boasts a lot about all the ways he doesn't live up, and I'm sure that there are plenty of ways that I don't live up. Like what? We could talk about my efforts and yet failures as a husband. My efforts and yet failures as a father. I try really hard to lead our staff well, and I'm sure I fail plenty of times. I try to be a good friend to you, Brian. And sometimes I succeed, but often I fail. It's more than just talking about weaknesses. What's the purpose of doing something like this? The purpose of doing something like this is to illustrate the point. Paul lists all these ways that he fails so he can show that even though he is this weak, that the gospel still continues to go out because God is infinitely strong. And so to what extent ought we be well aware of our weaknesses in the midst of this? I think it's always good to be self-aware of our strengths and our weaknesses and recognize very plainly, as the message points to today, that even though we are very weak and short-sighted and even though we struggle in sin, that God uses people just like you, just like me, and does incredibly powerful things through us for the sake of his kingdom. Well, with that, let's get to part one of Pastor Nick Gatsky's message, Boasting and Weakness. We're picking up in the middle of a series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And Paul is now at this point, as we're nearing toward the end of the book, really starting to drive home one of the major points. And the major points of this book consist around the ideas of strength and weakness for this life. He is in the middle of this section where he's talking about bragging and boasting in certain types of ways and not in other ways. And as you turn there, you, I'm sure, recognize that nobody really tends to brag about their weakness. <laughs> nobody tends to brag about the bad things that happen to them. When we brag, we typically boast about our strengths or the good things that happen to us. But imagine with me for a moment that you asked a friend of yours how his week was going And he responded something like this. My week has been absolutely amazing. None of my coworkers like me. But that's okay because I lost my job this week anyway. And my wife hasn't spoken to me for the whole week. And my kids tend to generally steer clear of me, either because of my dad jokes or because they think I smell a little bit funny. I thought with all the free time I had on my hands now that this would be the week where I finally took the plunge and got into cryptocurrency. And so I took out half of the savings of my retirement account. I opened up an account on Robinhood on my iPhone. I dumped it all in Bitcoin. But you know what happened? In two days, the value went down 20%. So I got scared. I pulled the money back out. I put it back into the retirement account a little bit lighter than it was before. I tried to go on vacation, but the TSA wouldn't let me through the airport. Those guys are shady anyway. And on the way home from the airport, I stopped 
to get some really nice steaks to grill that evening for myself and the family. But while I was cooking them, I started the timer and I got enraptured in those little animal videos on Facebook. You know the ones. Those ones about snakes and mice and tigers and rhinos and all of those cool things. And I totally forgot that the steaks were on the grill. So we didn't have dinner that night. I was angry at my mistake, so I turned around and kicked the dog. But before I could even kick the dog, he beat me to it and kicked me. I'd say that I am absolutely crushing it this week. How is yours? Plenty of people brag, but nobody brags like that. Well, nobody brags like that unless they're trying to make a point. And in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul seems to be boasting about all the wrong kinds of things. And he does so to make a point. And so follow with me as we pick up 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 16 through verse 33. This is what he says. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. For what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Arteris was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. In chapters 10 and 11, we see Paul directly attacking the idea of wrongful boasting. He has seen that the self-promoting boasting of 
the people that he sarcastically calls the super apostles gained them an increased audience among the Corinthian people. They were gaining traction and notoriety for their own fame, and they were doing so at the expense of the gospel. So in the first part of the chapter 11, Paul has prepared them and prepared us for the fact that he will indeed meet them on the playing field of boasting. This is a playing field that he abhors. It's a playing field that he calls foolish again and again and again. But his tact was one of sarcasm and rebuke in the midst of this foolishness. And in verse 18 and 19, we see in this text how the passage is continuing to just drip with tone. As he says, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. These false teachers or super apostles as some called them, were claiming that they were God's anointed because of the good things that were happening in their life. And conversely, Paul was castigated because of all the difficulty that was in his life. But now the tables are turning and Paul displays who the real fools are. Their embrace of a false gospel has dire circumstances. And he says so in verse 19, as he sarcastically tells them that they put up with people who make them slaves and devour them and take advantage of them, put on airs and strike them in the face. It's not a very comforting description of what these leaders or teachers are actually giving to them. And it just goes to show you that when you embrace false teaching, (laughs) And if you embrace a false gospel, that the results are serious in their consequence. They're dire in their circumstance. They are harmful in their effect to you. A false gospel enslaves you, Paul says, because it will often place demands on you that God himself doesn't even demand of you. A false teacher will take advantage of others by promising them things that they cannot deliver if the adherents of their teaching will only do certain things, things that those teachers themselves will often not even do. And there's plenty of examples of this throughout church history and even in other areas of life. I think of the book that Michael Moss wrote a number of years ago called Salt, Sugar, and Fat. He studies how over the past three decades, America's largest food producers carefully studied how to help us all crave the junk food that we crave. For example, some of the food industry's biggest names, including Campbell Soup and General Foods and Kraft and PepsiCo and others, hired Crave consultants like Dr. Howard Moskowitz to help them determine what they call your bliss point, the point where food companies can optimize your craving. Frito-Lay, for example, the makers of, of course, Lay's potato chips, and a shockingly high number of varieties of Cheetos, 21 varieties, I think, at its highest point, 
operated a research complex near Dallas, Texas that employed 500 chemists, psychologists, and technicians and spent up to $30 million a year to find your bliss point for their junk food. One food scientist called Cheetos one of the most marvelously constructed foods on the planet in terms of pure pleasure. I imagine that some of you might agree. Cheetos has what's called a vanishing caloric density. In other words, because it melts down really quickly, your brain thinks that there's no calories in it, and therefore you can just keep eating them forever. Interestingly enough, many of the former executives of these food companies that Moss interviewed avoid the very foods that they try to get the rest of us to eat. Howard Moskowitz, for example, doesn't drink Pepsi products because he claims that soda is not good for your teeth. The Frito-Lay executive admitted that he avoids processed foods, like Cheetos. And Moss concludes, like other former food executives I met, this Frito-Lay executive overhauled his entire diet to avoid the very foods he once worked so hard to perfect. Friends, false teachers often press doctrine that they themselves can't or won't even live by. And this was happening among the Corinthian church. And those false teachers were known for their boasting, just as many false teachers are today. And so Paul writes about the credentials that point to strength in the midst of weakness. And as we look down in the text a little further, we see real confidence in the flesh Paul comes to them and says, this is what fleshly boasting should look like. If you're going to brag, let me show you how to do it. And in verse 21 and 22, he shows us just that. Look at it with me. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Paul is pointing to his identity or to his pedigree that if there was anyone who was able to boast based in who he was and where he had come from, it was this guy. And those three little rhetorical sentences point to an ethnic identity, a religious identity, and a covenantal identity. He says with regard to ethnic identity that he is a Hebrew in the midst of a church that has a number of Gentiles in it who claimed a unique nearness to God. The Jewish man could make the claim based on the fact that he was part of God's chosen people and that his ethnic race was clearly founded by God and for God. He also points to his religious identity. He refers to himself as an Israelite, pointing to the fact that his religious heritage gave him certain rights. Paul talks about the Israelites in a number of places throughout the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 9, he is talking about God's purposes in election, and he is 
saying that he would do anything to have his Jewish brothers and sisters saved, so much so that he points to the rights that they have. He said, they're Israelites in chapter 9, verse 4 of Romans. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And then Paul points to his identity as a member of the covenant community. He refers to himself as an offspring of Abraham. Now, to some false apostles who are claiming that their physical success is an evidence that God has blessed them with unique promises and favor, Paul points out the fact that if there is anyone who could expect the benefit of the promises of God, it would be him. He was a child of Abraham, which meant he was a child of the covenant. And these promises weren't new promises. They weren't suspect or open to interpretation. These were the promises of old, promises that God had been slowly and consistently fulfilling to his covenant people throughout the course of thousands of years. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter three, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you think that you come from the right family, have the right education, or have evidenced the right kind of blessing, and that these are the things that point to the favor of God resting upon you, think again. (laughs) You cannot top my identity and how it points to the nearness of God, says Paul. Friends, if we pause here, there's a really important application to consider because Paul is not talking about the aspects of his identity and boasting about them to prove his worth or value, or his favor with God. In fact, he is boasting about his identity to prove the exact opposite. That his identity, as pure as it is, is not what gives someone favor with God. And there are many, many people today who wrongly think or or function like they think that because they are from a certain ethnic identity or familial identity that they will automatically have God's favor in their life. There are some people today who think that because their parents were Christians, that they're automatically Christians too. There are some people who think that because they're Americans and that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian values, that to be an American means that I'm a Christian too. But this is not the case. Not your family name or your country or any other part of your identity puts you in a position to be favored by God. 
Each person, each person in this room needs to engage God and respond to God's offer for salvation on their own. Each person needs to repent of the sins that we have committed. Each person needs to respond to God in faith in the Lord Jesus. Each person can be restored to God individually. And then those individuals create an incredible family identity, both in your blood family and in the corporate family here, and even to some extent in varying degrees in our nation. Conversely, some people might look at aspects of their identity and they say, I can't be a Christian and enjoy the favor of God in my life or in eternity because I'm not from the right family or I'm not the right nationality or I don't have the right education. I can't tell you how many times I've heard expressions like this. I'm an Arab. We're Muslims. Or I'm from an Irish or Italian or South American family. And so obviously we're all Catholics and we're not Protestant Christians. Or I'm not smart enough to get into all this Bible reading stuff that you Christians seem to really care about. And so I don't know if I'm smart enough to be a Christian at all. Or my identity as a person is wrapped up so much in all the bad things that I've done in the past or the bad things my family has done. And the list goes on. But you need to know if that's you, you need to know that God accepts sinners of all kinds and he does so from all places and all ethnicities and all kinds of families and backgrounds. And we see the story of the Bible is replete with example after example of this. I think way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Joshua chapter two, there was a woman who was residing in a city who was not a Jew. She was a Gentile and she was not just a Gentile, but she was a prostitute. And she was not just a prostitute. She ran a house of prostitutes. And when she came to encounter God and she saw of his magnificence and his mercy, she followed him. And this resulted in her not only being used to save some of his servants, but eventually to become a God follower among his people and become the great-great-grandmother of the greatest Israelite king in the Old Testament, King David. Her name was Rahab. Think in the New Testament, many examples of Jews and Gentiles, of fornicators and murderers and upstanding citizens people from the right families and the wrong families putting their faith in Jesus. One such example is that of the Ethiopian eunuch, an African government official who was castrated, that's what it means to be a eunuch, as a vow of loyalty. And in Acts chapter eight, he's reading the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah and he puts his faith in Jesus and is baptized. And you see this in the book of Revelation. You see a picture of the heavenly throne room of eternity. And in this picture, you see that God has saved 
all kinds of sinners to himself. In fact, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, this is the vision of John, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so you see, there are no identity requirements for you to find favor with God. Favor with God comes to you through faith in Jesus. Thanks, Pastor. That concludes part one of Dr. Nick Gatsky's message, Boasting in Weakness. I want to bring him back in today because there's some core words, some basic fundamental theological principles that we as followers of Jesus need to know. And for gifts this month, to a better word, you've got a resource available for folks. Yeah, J.I. Packer wrote a book called 18 Words a number of years ago. And the title claims that they're the most important 18 words that you will ever need to know. And I don't think he's far off. They are really important to help us understand who God is and who we are in light of that. And it's really encouraging, I think, for Christians to understand and grow in their understanding of these concepts that he presents. And so if you want to be encouraged and built up, this is a good resource for you. Yeah, and it's more than Christianese. These are principles that are written in Scripture that aren't automatically intuitive to a modern audience. Absolutely right. So you need this. I'd encourage you to check it out. And the best way to get your hands on it is go to our website. Go to abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. While you're there, you can learn more about listening to past programs. You can learn more about the ministry itself and submit your gift today. And with your gift this month to A Better Word, we'll send you J.I. Packer's book, 18 Words. Again, it's abetterword.org. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.